morning and Sam's going to share some stuff. And then probably, I couldn't pass this up. At the end, you're going to let them pick your brain a little bit and ask you a few questions. <laughs> right. <laughs> so. Only if they have a tweezers and microscope. <laughs> okay. Tweezers and a microscope. All right. So put your hands together and welcome Dr. Sam Brinkman. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Gary. Well, I hope our discussion this morning is worth everybody's time and attention here. And where is Jim? Where did Jim go to? Oh, there he is. I need somebody to keep him awake. He said he planned on sleeping through it. So, <laughs> Well, first of all, I want to uh, thank Pastor Gary and Pastor Amy for the uh, the plan, the program that they put together for this summer, because basically what they're wanting to do is take this, this um, time that we have together on Sunday mornings where we realize in a, in a group, you know, as a body of Christ, the, um, the story of God and his people and take that out into the world so that it's not a Sunday morning thing, but it's a lifestyle thing. It's an all the time, every day kind of thing. I want to tell you a quick story. About two months ago, my, uh, my truck got hit in a parking lot, and there's a little deflector in the bottom front part of that that's supposed to keep it um, a little bit more aerodynamic. Uh, it was torn, and it was sticking out, and it looked just ugly. You know, such a pretty pickup to have something like that going on. And so I got the parts and decided to fix it. And uh, I learned a long time ago when I was a kid that it's always easier to take things apart than it is to put them back together, right? I mean, everybody here has learned that lesson. So uh, I took the old parts off and I was putting the new part on and I was really having a struggle because as I was lying under the truck, if I looked like this through the tops of my glasses, I couldn't see the fasteners. <laughs> And so if I looked like this through the bottom of my glasses, you know, the, the bifocals, you know, I couldn't quite get them into the right focus unless I moved my head forward like that. And so after some discussion between me and God, <laughs> I decided to call Travis. You guys know Travis. He's, he's brilliant with his hands. He works on heavy equipment and just a very talented guy with his hands. And so I said, Travis, I just can't see this well enough to get this back on there. I got it on well enough that, you know, we're good for a day or two, but I don't want to drive highway speed without having all the fasteners on there. And so he wonderful young man that he is, decided he would come over and do it. So he shows up with his buddy, Nick. You guys have probably seen Nick in here with him at times. And so Travis gets out of the truck, walks over to mine with a bit of a swagger. Yeah, Travis has a, tw a swagger, you know. <laughs> little bit of a swagger walking over to the truck. And he says, yeah, we can do this. It'll just take a minute. <laughs> So, does anybody here know what presbyopia is? <laughs> presbyopia is that thing that happens to your eyes that makes you need bifocals when you get in your 40s, you know. And the literal translation of that is old eyes. <laughs> Presby refers to old, opia refers to eyes. And so, basically, I had a case of old eyes there, and they were just not working right. Well, those of you that went to the early service heard Amy say something about the embarrassment of getting old. 
Travis really did not have a swagger. That's something that my pride was putting into him. <laughs> because it was very embarrassing for me to tell this young guy with a strong body and great sensory systems like mine used to be, <laughs> you know, that I couldn't get it done and that I needed him to get it done for me. And so this is an example of, uh, I think, the embarrassment of aging that Amy talked about earlier. Could I have the next slide, please? I think that it was Dr. Bob Butler, former director of the National Institute on Aging, that's given credit for this statement. The prospect of aging is not necessarily pleasant, but the alternative is even worse. <laughs> and that sort of is what we have to live by, right? You're either going to die young or you're going to get old, one or the other. Uh, aging is not the passing of time, but it's about the things that happen during the passage of time. So it's not just time. But we can recognize, and I'll show you a graph in just a minute here, that aging happens to a person, but it also happens to a people or a nation. Uh, this is a graph. It's a complex little graph, but basically the farther the bar goes sideways, the more people there are in that age group. Okay, and so age um, down at the bottom is the youngest age group, zero to four years of age, goes on up to, what do my presbyopic eyes say, 85, <laughs> 85 and higher, okay? And what we see in this graph is that there are a lot more old people in this country than there used to be, and there are a lot fewer young people in this country than there used to be. Those at the bottom we'll call the young people, and those at the top we'll call the seasoned citizens. <laughs> and I have migrated my way upward in this graph for 68 and a half years now, and so I am represented up there high. I want to tell you a, uh, well, let me mention this first of all. An amazing, amazing event happened in this country in the year 2011. And in fact, think back, it happened just a little bit after midnight, New Year's Day 2011. The first baby boomer turned 65. And that's why we have a graph that looks like this. Those of us who are baby boomers are getting into the second half of life. <laughs> now, I'm going to tell you a story about two different women and aging. So would you give me the next slide there, please? This is a woman who was known in the research literature as Auguste Dietrich, a German woman, um, she was born May 16, 1850, and at the age of 51, her husband, who was a clerk for the railroad, simply was not able to take care of her at home anymore. She had developed memory problems. She had developed paranoia, extreme excitability, erratic behavior patterns, and he simply could not take care of her at home anymore. So he brought her to the Asylum for the Insane and Epileptic in Frankfurt. We have nicer names for hospitals now, you know. This is the 1800s equivalent of Golden Age Manor, the asylum for the insane and epileptic in Frankfurt. And interestingly, the physician that was there to receive her into the hospital was a, uh, a man named Dr. Alois Alzheimer. And it's actually her brain 
that was the first brain study that demonstrated what we now call the beta amyloid plaques and the neurofibrillary tangles that are the characteristic of Alzheimer's disease. She died in 1906, so 56 years of age, her life was over. Anybody know who this is? Enrique von Andelschipper. Now you know, right? <laughs> she was born in 1890 when Augusta Dietrich was 40 years old, and she died in 2005. Do the math. That's 115 years. When she was 80, she donated her body to science. When she turned 100, she donated her body to science again. <laughs> And because she was doing so well, she began at that point having real thorough annual physical examinations and what we would now refer to as neuropsychological evaluations, tests of memory and language and thinking skills and things like that. And these mental evaluations over the rest of her lifetime showed pretty much no change in her cognitive abilities. And at autopsy, there was pretty much no evidence, very, very minimal evidence, of these neurofibrillary tangles and beta amyloid plaque. So we see these two people pictured side by side, one 51 years old, unable to care for herself anymore, the other 115 years old, sharp as a tack, up to the moment of her death. And we think, what is the difference between these two people? What is the difference in their genetics? What is the difference in their lifestyles? What is the difference in their nutrition, in their on and on and on? And that's the question that we have been trying to answer for many, many years. And we continue to try. So let's talk about aging. And I want to discuss aging in three different dimensions. One, the biology of aging. Second, the psychology of aging. And third, the sociocultural context in which aging takes place. It used to be thought that cells do what cells do. They reproduce. They, they replicate themselves. And the thought was that um, cells could go on replicating themselves forever and ever. In other words, here's a skin cell. You know, it's going to go through meiosis, mitosis. It's going to produce a new skin cell, and the old one goes away, and then that one, when its time is up, will do it again. Well, a fellow in Hayflick in 1961 um, challenged the theory that these cells could reproduce forever. He grew cells in a Petri dish, and he found that many different types of cells from many different types of organisms are essentially programmed to reproduce themselves about 50 times and then stop. And so it's not that cells can go on reproducing forever, but it's somehow the genetics of all biological systems are designed to stop reproducing at some point along the way. And in the case of this, the uh, specimens he looked at, about 50 times. So as this happens, as um, the cells reproducing themselves becomes less and less efficient, let's look at how that affects the person. All biological systems age. Vascular systems age, right? 
That's why we have hypertension with increased uh, frequency with advancing age. Um, musculoskeletal systems age. People don't move around as well. They can't crawl under trucks and <laughs> manipulate little things as well. Sensory systems age. Vision. We have presbyopia with glaucoma, cataract, Cadillacs in the eyes, as some of my patients call it. <laughs> Uh, these things take their toll. Motor systems, movement capabilities change. Integumentary system, you can look at skin. I mean, the skin of my grandkids looks a whole lot different from my skin, you know. And so integumentary systems, digestive systems age, pulmonary systems age. So aging in a biological sense is a fairly universal phenomenon and all biological systems age, including the brain. So let's look a little bit at how the brain ages. First, there's a reduction in total brain volume. Now, not all areas of the brain deplete equally, but there is an overall reduction. Trivia quiz, if, if you get this right, uh, you win $100. You can see Gary to collect it, okay? <laughs> at what age, <laughs> at what age does a human being have its maximal number of brain cells? Birth. Was that 35 out here? Ah, very good. <laughs> 16. <laughs> and, my and my first question is, why do you chuckle at that? <laughs> There's a certain disconnect between the number of brain cells that you have and the wisdom with which you live. <laughs> Now, I was an exception. I was an exceptional child, you know. At, <laughs> at 16, I was truly brilliant, and my father was not. But, <laughs> but, you know, I was happy to see that as I got older, he got smarter. And <laughs> by the time I was 30, he was brilliant, I'll tell you that. <laughs> okay, reduction in brain volume from 16 years of age to 65 years of age, about a one-third reduction in total brain bulk. Ooh, yeah. Decreased circuitry. In other words, we think of neural networks, sets of neural centers that work together to give us speech or language or visual spatial abilities. So there's decrease in the overall circuitry and interconnectivity of the brain. There's decreased plasticity. Let me explain this term plasticity. As a result of you sitting in here, um, hearing this and participating in this discussion, something physical is changing in your brain. Isn't that fascinating? That the experience of being in here sleeping, Jim, being in here <laughs> uh, for a discussion actually changes something physically in your brain. And this is a change that will occur over the next day, over the next several days. It will go on for a time. That's what we call plasticity, that physical something that changes in the brain because of an experience that a person would have. So there's much, much decline in that plasticity. The morphology of neurons, in other words, let's just call it the shape or the anatomy of neurons changes, the number of dendrites, the number of axonal processes and things like that. Um, there's a change in the, in the uh, uh, 
density of certain neurotransmitters. Um, for example, acetylcholine, the neurotransmitter involved in memory, is depleted by 50% from 16 to 65 years of age. 50% less acetylcholine in the brain of a 65-year-old compared to a 16-year-old. And we see that, if you give me the next slide, we see that these things are interdependent. In other words, the aging of the brain has a lot to do with how the sensory systems are. If you cannot see well, if you cannot hear well, if you cannot taste food or smell things as well, this affects what the brain is doing. Similarly, if drive centers of the brain become affected, you don't really care whether you see well or hear well or eat well. And so these process, these different domains are all inter, uh, interrelated and that increases the complexity when we try to talk about aging overall. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Now the psychology of aging. How many of you here would say memory gets worse with age? How many don't remember the question? <laughs> What's that? It, it gets worse with kids also. <laughs> but forgetting is a very useful function, trust me. <laughs> so does memory get worse with age? Two people, a 20-year-old, a 70-year-old, faced with the same problem. This 20-year-old has the opportunity, I, I used to say when I did this talk, go to the library, now I say go to Google. <laughs> um, and study and read and remember what's been read and apply all this new information to solving the problem. The 70-year-old says, this is the fourth time I've encountered this problem in my life. Let's think through how we solved it before. And so in reality, the older memory is not worse than the younger memory, but it's different. The older memory has so much more experience, so much more knowledge stored in it, and Spud, I know you'll agree, sometimes there's no room for more knowledge in there, right? <laughs> yeah, the older brain, the older memory system rather, is different from a younger memory system, but not necessarily worse. It's different. There, uh, there, there's research that say thought processes are less flexible. Uh, you know, there are differences in knowledge base and things like that. But that's never really been conclusively proven as a function of age. What about depression? Is there more depression in advanced age? If you look at the depression inventories or questionnaires, let's say, that are used for young people, um, and see how an old person would respond. Do you have more aches and pains than you used to have? <laughs> In young people, that's considered a symptom of depression. In old people, that's considered evidence that you didn't die young. <laughs> Do you look forward to the future less than you used to? <laughs> Uh, how much future you got left. <laughs> and in fact, that brings us to the issue of planning for the future and life expectancy. I, I suspect nearly everyone in here, there are a few of you that I will remove from this expectation, have more years behind us than we have ahead of us, right? What's that, Judy? Closer to where we're going than where we've been. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. <laughs> I've always wondered about 
being uh, 65 years old and taking out a 30-year mortgage. What are they expecting from me exactly? <laughs> so anyway, these, these bear on the psychological functioning of aging. Let's look at the next slide now, the sociocultural aspects of aging. This is a youth-oriented society. And this is a society that puts a lot of emphasis on utility and productivity. What can you produce? What can you give? Not all societies are like that. Asian societies are different from that. Asian cultures are different from that. You know, in an Asian country, the oldest man in the village could have severe Alzheimer's disease, but because he's the oldest man in the village, he is the village chief, period. So it's a little bit different in this society. Now, let me throw this question out. Anybody ever wonder, besides me, what's so magic about 65? Why 65 as opposed to 64 or 80 or 40 or something like that? It dates to Bismarck's Germany, actually. At that time, Marxism was growing in Europe uh, Marxism being a socialistic system in which the government would provide everything for uh, the people that were being governed. And Bismarck was trying to resist the Marxist movement, and so he decided that, that politically it would be a good move to recognize some of the needy people in the country so that the government could provide for them, could provide for their security and for their well-being. And he allocated a certain amount of money to do that. And he thought that probably the easiest group to identify, which would be a small group, would be the elderly. And so he allocated a certain amount of money, started with the oldest in the country, and 65 is where he ran out of money. <laughs> That's the truth. That's why Social Security eligibility... Mandatory retirement programs traditionally, not so much today. And other things, Medicare, they have this 65 cutoff. <laughs> Doesn't that just follow great logic? <laughs> Marketing and advertising. If somebody wants to sell a car, would you take... They said, I hate to get, you know, like Woebegone, where the um, Lutherans drive Fords and the Catholics drive Chevys. You know, people get very uh, loyal to their brands here. I wish my grandson was here. He knows this for sure from his father. If it has an oval on it, it's a piece of junk. If it has a bow tie, we like it. <laughs> um, but we have brand loyalty. But if you want to sell a car, you could ask somebody who has been buying cars for 50 years and using them and reselling them and things like that, or you could do what some pretty young lady would like you to do with the implication that somehow if you buy this car, you draw closer to her. <laughs> so young people are used in marketing most of the time. Now, the exception, there's a certain sexism here. <laughs> There's a certain sexism. Older men, Charles, you'll be glad to hear this. Older men are considered still to be rather attractive. 
<laughs> I got to tell you a story about Charles and Ella. Permission? <laughs> Not this past Lent, but last year at Lent, Alice was thinking, you know what? I forgot what I gave up for Lent. <laughs> and she thinks, I don't want to embarrass myself by saying that. I'm going to go ask Charles what he gave up for Lent, and then when he tells me what he gave up, that'll help me remember what I gave up, right? So, Charles, what did you give up for Lent? And Charles says, is it Lent? <laughs> <laughs> Unless they lied in growth group, that's a true story. <laughs> so we have this thing that we call a ladder of success. This ladder of success requires energy, hopefulness, dreams, ambition, invincibility, those things that young people have. And these things are very, very important for climbing that ladder of success. Thomas Merton, without wisdom, we may spend our whole life climbing the ladder of success only to get to the top and find that our ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. That's a very, very powerful statement. And in fact, when we think about the great King Solomon, known throughout the land for his wisdom, right? I mean, Solomon, if you look Solomon up in the dictionary, first thing they say is the wise king known over generations for his wisdom, climbed this ladder of success, and in utter frustration and disappointment, the first words, other than the introduction, hello, I'm Solomon, I'm talking to you, um, the first words of Ecclesiastes, meaningless, Meaningless. All of this ladder climbing to success that I've done is meaningless, or in some translations, folly, you know, which is a, maybe an even more powerful way to say it. It's all been folly. You know, I developed these great herds, and I have these lands, and I have these riches, and we built this temple, and, and on and on and on and on. And Ecclesiastes is essentially about the meaninglessness when you find that you climbed this ladder for years and years, got to the top and found it was leaning against the wrong wall. Some would say that um, intelligence is knowing that tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. So <laughs> and so you see, it's not just knowledge, but there's wisdom as well. <clears throat> Picture with me for a second walk out of here, walk down the street, see four people driving a nail into a two-by-four. You go up to the first one and say, what are you doing? He says, I'm driving a nail into a two-by-four. Go to the second one, what are you doing? He says, I'm doing what the boss told me to do. The third one, I'm building a house. The fourth one, I'm building a house for some people so that they can know the love of the Lord and that the Lord's people will take care of them. Everybody doing exactly the same task, driving a nail into a two-by-four, 
but the context, the task that lies within the task, as Richard Rohr would say it, the task that lies within the task is totally different. I'm not driving a nail into a two-by-four. I'm building a house. And I'm building a house not for my glory, but for the glory of God. And so wisdom allows people to see that task within the task. When my son comes and finishes up the job on my truck that I couldn't finish, <laughs> to him, he's doing this, this is what he does every day. You know, you put stuff together and you take stuff apart and the equipment runs better when you're done. But what's the task within the task? He was loving me. He was saying, I'm there for you. I know you can't do all the things that you used to could do. Used to could, that's... <laughs> I know you can't do all the things you used to could do, but I'm here for you. That's the task within the task. And wisdom allows you to see that task within the task. Let me check my time here. So another 10 minutes, Gary? Okay. I want to talk a little bit more about dementia now because I know there's interest in that. First of all, dementia is not normal aging. Dementia is not normal. Most older people do not develop dementia. It's very important to keep that in mind. Many cases of dementia can be reversed. In other words, just because you're 65 and have a memory disorder doesn't mean it's Alzheimer's disease. It doesn't mean it can't be fixed. 20 or so percent of cases over the age of 65 with recent onset of memory disorders have a treatable disorder. And if you treat it, they return to normal memory functioning. But Alzheimer's disease is the most common irreversible form of dementia in older people. This is kind of a schematic of how Alzheimer's disease develops. At the left, the white figure, that's an adult with normal memory functioning. Somewhere over time, memory structures of the brain begin to change, and at some point on the right, symptoms start to be seen, most commonly memory problems or word-finding problems. That gap from that white figure over to that gray figure where symptoms emerge is 20 to 25 years. So for 20 to 25 years, there's a microscopic disease process going on in the brain that is going to result in the clinical manifestation, the symptoms, the impairments of Alzheimer's disease. Brain reserve capacity is what stands between that disease process and the manifestation of symptoms. Brain reserve capacity, go ahead to the next slide. Brain reserve capacity is the ability of the brain to continue to organize and execute complex tasks in spite of physical limitations being placed on it. So the implications of this, the brain is able to absorb considerable physical damage before symptoms show up. It's thought that certain activities increase brain reserve capacity and certain conditions can be created that allow a more direct measure of brain reserve capacity. But also conditions can be encountered which unexpectedly deplete and suddenly deplete brain reserve capacity. So the uh, brain reserve capacity, we know that it's higher with higher education, with increased task proficiency, the things that I'm good at, and the things that Travis are good at, we have different brain reserve capacities based on those two skill sets. Increases with certain personality types, increases with a relaxed, active lifestyle, and more can be said about that. 
but it mitigates the relationship between physical impairment and the experience of symptoms. It may help to explain why this thing, mild cognitive impairment or MCI, people that are having some cognitive breakdown but do not have dementia, why some of those develop dementia and some of them do not. There are certain underlying physical structures associated with um, brain, uh, brain reserve capacity, mostly plasticity, and these are potentially modifiable things. This is just an image of what a neuron looks like, a very healthy neuron on the left with lots of inputs. The bottom um, is the cell body with the dendrites coming off and the part going off to the top is conveying the electrical impulse to the next neuron at, uh, across the synapse. And so you see uh, with good brain reserve capacity, a lot of connectivity among neurons and with progressive deterioration on the right, very little interconnectivity among neurons. Uh, Alzheimer's disease, if we could increase brain reserve capacity, if you could reduce the prevalence, uh, you could reduce the prevalence of Alzheimer's by 8.3% by 2050, beneficial effects on cognition would be overwhelming. And I'm gonna mention the FINGER study now. This is a, an acronym for Finnish geriatric study of something, something, something. I can't remember what all the words were. But basically they took a bunch of <laughs> Let me restate that. I could remember if I wanted to. <laughs> anyway, they put they put groups of people in very stimulating lifestyles with a lot of attention to nutrition and physical exercise and another group that had routine health care and they showed a tremendous difference in the rate of development of dementia in those two groups. Uh, next slide, please. This study is now being replicated in the U.S. The pointer study, again, I could remember if I want to, but I don't, <laughs> but it's an acronym. And they're enrolling starting this year in five large healthcare networks works and rolling up to 2,500 people to follow them for two years using this model. So this is going to be a very, this, this finger study and the replication under the pointer study is more important than any drug that has been developed so far in its impact on Alzheimer's disease. That's not what we wanted. We want the drug, right? We're not getting that drug so far, but there's a lot of research in that area. But um, the... Um, finger study and then the uh, U.S. replication pointer study. And this is being replicated, by the way, in Israel, Germany, Britain, France. Uh, Singapore has a study. China has a study that they're doing. I believe South Korea also. So the, the impact of the finger study is worldwide right now. Okay, well, that's about all that I planned on going, I think. Let me look at my notes. Ah, let's, next slide. And that's what I... Okay, who said this? The children now love luxury. Remember Amy, what Amy said in the early service? <clears throat> they have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders and love chatter in place of exercise. Children are now tyrants, not the servants of their households. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents, chatter before company, gobble up dainties at the table, cross their legs, and tyrannize their teachers. Who said that? Who? Mark Twain. That would have been a good one. Socrates. <laughs> 
Next slide. Yeah, according to the National Libra the Library of Congress, Socrates actually uh, said it and attributed the quote to Plato. <laughs> so this intergenerational struggle is not a new thing, is it? <laughs> I know Socrates was sometime before the 1800s. <laughs> anyway, um, any questions that you would like me to dodge? <laughs> Tim? Mm -hmm. So what's one step that all of us can take, though, regardless of where we are on that spectrum of aging? Very good question. One step that people could take that to increase that brain reserve capacity, there, there are basically four components to it. Regular physical exercise, regular socialization. You know, when hearing goes bad and vision goes bad, mobility decreases, you have to work hard to socialize. Third thing is good nutrition. And the fourth thing, mental stimulation. The, the old joke, a guy goes to a job he hates every, every day and says, when I retire, I'm going to go fishing every day. You know, 20 years he says that. He retires, he goes fishing. After about two months of fishing, he's sick of it and the freezer's full. You know, you have to be engaged even after retirement, a sense of purpose, a sense of engagement with life. Yes, ma'am. Say that again. She, she feels like she has to do this in order to feel young in her job. Her job. Oh. Oh my goodness, that's awesome. You know, uh, some of you know Dr. Virginia Conley, who was the uh, first female graduate of LSU Medical School. She's now 104, I believe, and first female physician in Abilene. She was a radiologist, and a couple of years ago, she was honored by the Alzheimer's Association. Virginia was always reading, and she was reading a book, How to Plan for Your Future. Everybody got a good <laughs> kick out of that. <laughs> she wasn't done. <laughs> Mm -hmm. But if you have uh, Alzheimer's in your family and it comes down. Yes, if you have Alzheimer's in your family, should you still do these things? First of all, the genetic component of Alzheimer's disease is very small, actually. Now, there is a familial form, but they have onset in their 40s and 50s, half of each generation. But that's a very rare form of it. The so-called sporadic form, genetic link is very, very small. The big risk is aging. When you're 65, 2% risk, 75, 14% risk, 85, 40% risk. So not dying young is the biggest risk. <laughs> yeah, and I know it's too late for a lot of us, isn't it? <laughs> okay, Gary, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you.